specific quotes we've been looking at are those in which Jesus says something regarding the reasons for his coming into the world. For example, we've read of Jesus saying that he took upon humanity to come into this world in fulfillment of the Old Testament. Specifically, what he, what he had said is that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. We heard as well, a little further on in Matthew, Jesus saying that he came for the purpose of calling sinners to himself. As he said that, he spoke those words in the scenario in which Jesus was eating and drinking in the house in which tax collectors and sinners had gathered. And he added that he, his being there was related to his purpose of healing those who have had a sickness. In that little vignette, we are actually seeing in miniature what Jesus' coming to earth was all about. The world, the world in which we live is a world filled with sinful people. And Jesus enters into that world, and he does so to heal what sin has made so wrong. Now, we also were reminded on a, a past Sunday, again, as we moved a little further on in Matthew, that there is an effect to the incarnation that results because some people do receive him and others don't. Others remain his enemies and reject him. So his coming also effectively causes divisions among humanity. In fact, divisions often that arise within the midst of a family. And so Jesus also said about his coming that he has not come to bring peace but a sword. He has come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother. What Jesus was, was really saying in that regard about his coming is that divisions would be inevitable as a result of his earthly work. Not everyone will come to him and the rejection of him will at times create an antipathy between those who do receive Christ as their Lord and as their Savior and those who don't. Now that brings us to today. And one more text in Matthew where Jesus says something about the reason for his coming. This morning we, we find the words of Jesus as they are recorded in Matthew chapter 20. And he will speak about the reason for his coming in a, in a powerful single verse in verse 28. Yet that single verse is also given to us in the context of a conversation Jesus has with the mother of two of his disciples. So let's read a whole of that conversation. Let's eavesdrop, if you will, upon it and consider this final matter in this series of sermons regarding how Jesus himself has addressed his incarnation. If you haven't already done so, turn with me to Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28. But as always, let's pray as we seek insight as we read the word of God. So please pray with me. Father, as we, we come to your word once again, we stand in awe of it once again. We are so reminded that this is your word to us. This is the word you have spoken to our hearts. And so, Lord, as we, we read it and as we reflect on it, we ask, Lord, that it does touch our hearts. We ask, Lord, that you would, you would make us see what you would have us see by your Spirit. Guide us through the text. Help us understand. Purge any untruth that might come from the mouth of a pastor so that we only hear your truth. And when that happens, Lord, we ask 
that it would affect us, that we would be changed people because we have encountered your word in the Bible that you have given us. Guide us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. Beginning at verse 20. Then the mothers of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by the Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to serve, be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Amen. So the only thing that Jesus says here about his coming to our world in human flesh, as I've already indicated, is in the very last verse that we've just read. And why that's where we, we will, in fact, place most of our focus this morning, I don't want to ignore the context into which Jesus speaks these words. He is giving the reason for his coming in the conclusion of this conversation that began between himself and a mother, a mother of two of Jesus' disciples. And this is a conversation that she began over her concern about her son's place with Jesus in the kingdom that he has come to establish. The mother, we're told, is the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And that informs us then that the two sons, these two disciples, are James and John. But there is still more I think we ought to have in mind as background before we explore even this conversation any further. You see, just before this request is made by the mother, Jesus and his disciples are journeying on the road to Jerusalem. It's near the time for the Passover celebration, and Jesus and his disciples would have been approaching the city along with many other people. There would have been a, a great number of people from many different regions, all converging on this city at this time. They would be coming to eat the sacrificial meal that commemorates the day when God redeemed the Hebrew people from their slavery in Egypt. And while they are on that journey to this city at this special time, at a moment just shortly before the mother of James and John makes her request, Jesus has taken the 12 disciples aside 
and specifically inform them now for a third time that this journey to Jerusalem is not just going there to participate in a feast. Jesus has said that when in Jerusalem, he, the Son of Man, will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, to be flogged, and to be crucified. And then he'll be raised on the third day. The disciples have all along known by the point, by this point in time, that Jesus has... Uh, had this history that will be his history, that will be uh, the result of him coming into the world that will mean that he goes to the cross. In large part, he came incarnate for that purpose, the purpose that he would die. His coming, ha his coming had that purpose, that he would go to the cross as was preordained by God. Well, the disciples now have that knowledge once again implanted in their minds, anew implanted in their minds. And it's then when this mother joins them, comes up to Jesus, and asks of Jesus that her sons, James and John, be given places of preeminence in the kingdom Jesus has come to establish. She asks that one be permitted to sit at the right hand, a place of honor, and the other at the left, another place of honor. When the gospel writer Luke writes about this same journey, he says that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. The prophet Isaiah said he prophesied uh, of the humiliation of the, the servant of God and that this servant, the Messiah, would set his face like flint, like stone, to face the suffering that was before him. Jesus, at that moment of time, was resolute to the task that was before him, the cross. And it's into that setting where the request of this woman is made. And Jesus answers her by saying, you do not know what you are asking. But Jesus' words now seem to be far less directed toward her and more directed to the sons that she represents and, are who, there, and who are there with her. You can almost sense as if Jesus has, has turned his eyes toward them to look them in the face and say to them, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And James and John respond. They respond by saying, yes, we are able. And what Jesus says next is also, again, more directed to the sons. You will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared by my Father. You know, the real answer that the disciples should have been giving was, no, no, we are unable to bear your cross, Jesus. Only Jesus can bear the cross of his death, but Jesus does not say to either brother, no, you are so wrong. No one could ever bear the wrath of God that I will soon bear. He instead affirms their answer and he says, yes, yes, you will drink up my cup. Yet there's a paradoxical quality to Jesus' answer because as, as fallen men, James and Johns cannot truly walk in the steps of Christ. They really aren't able to suffer the wrath that's to be poured about, out upon him but nonetheless, in their history, 
they will have their own taste of suffering. For the glory of Christ, they will suffer. James in time would be martyred for his service to the gospel. John would be exiled, banished to the Isle of Patmos. They would share in Christ's suffering for the sake of his glory. But as they answer the question Jesus has posed to them about drinking his cup, at that moment it was clear that they misunderstood the scope of the suffering Jesus would know. And yet, their willingness to share that cup is in some manner commendable. And their own persecutions are therefore also foreshadowed in Jesus' response to them. And then Jesus more directly answers the mother's request by telling, his, telling these brothers that the decision of their place in the kingdom of God is not for him to grant. Because anyone's place in the kingdom of God has already been determined for those for whom the places have been prepared. The incarnate Christ, you see, has voluntarily submitted to the will of the Father, and our Heavenly Father has already determined our places at the heavenly table of our Lord. Well, once the question is dealt with, the fact still remains that while there are only two disciples for whom a mother has requested a special place, there are still 12 disciples in number. And that would cause some degree of rift among the 12. Those whose mothers weren't there to intervene are, are particularly annoyed. Maybe because their mothers weren't there to ask or because they themselves didn't think to ask for a primary place. And so Jesus next uses that time after responding to their request to encourage all the disciples as to how they should live their lives in the world where they dwell. What the question of the mother suggested, what the compliance in the, to the question of James and John suggested, and what the annoyance of the others suggested is that all the disciples were envious of a high position in the kingdom of God. I suppose it's good to recognize that in some way these disciples understood that the kingdom of God was associated with the work of Jesus Christ. But all the same, these same disciples seem to have this misperception that there will be an imminent and earthly kingdom, a restoration of the fallen throne of David in the city of Jerusalem. And their greatest misunderstanding that is revealed in our passage is that all have inflated thoughts about their own position in that kingdom. Inflated thoughts that seem to forget what Jesus had just implanted in their minds that he was to be mocked, he was to be rejected, he was to be flogged, he was to be crucified. Jesus has revealed, again revealed, that his path to this heavenly and eternal kingdom would come through his suffering. He came to the world to serve the world. And his kingdom comes from his serving humanity even through his death. He bears upon his shoulders the very wrath of God as his service to mankind. But at this, this time, Jesus is telling his disciples that while his service to humanity was unique to him, his disciples are to also have a mind, the same mind as to service. And so Jesus 
brings up Gentile rulers as a negative contrast to explain the way disciples of Jesus are to live. Gentile rulers tend tended in that day to lord their authority over their subjects. Such rulers would look on their subjects as people whose only purpose in life would be to tend to their wishes, to serve the king's needs. And that example of earthly rulers is far too often the example of rulers in our time too. Even in our elected governments, the actions of the Men and women who have been elected far too often are designed to work to entrench their own power as opposed to serve the needs of those who have elected them. Earthly rulers seem to become preoccupied with their own positions. But that was, even in this scenario, happening among the 12 disciples of Christ as well. But that's not the way the follower of Christ is to live. The follower of Christ is to be a servant. In fact, greatness comes from servanthood. If you want preeminence, if you want to be first, live a life of service. Live like a slave. And it's then after teaching his disciples about how they should live that Jesus points to himself as the chief example, as the one who came with a very purpose to serve humanity and to serve in a way that James and John never could in a way that no disciple ever could. I say it again, the work of Jesus Christ is unique to Jesus. But that doesn't mean that his attitude of service should not be shared by us all. Our lives as people who are called to Christ are indeed to be lives of service after the manner in which Christ first served. That means we serve sacrificially. But but after giving instructions as to how we are to live, Jesus, in just a few words, describes the extent of his own servanthood. And by doing that, he does, again, teach us about his incarnation, about the reason why he took on human flesh and why he lived in human flesh. Now Jesus points to himself, and he identifies himself as the Son of Man. And he proclaims that he himself did not come to be served, but to serve And then he adds, he came to give his life as a ransom for many. All of these things that I have just said have relevance to Jesus' incarnation, even the fact that he calls himself the Son of Man. Even that has something to tell us that we shouldn't just glide over and move on. You see, that title alone has great relevance The Son of Man is a messianic title. It is a title that reminds us that Jesus was and is in fact our messianic king. And Son of Man is a title that should draw to our minds that Jesus is the one who according to the words of the prophet Daniel, the ones we read earlier, is the one who has given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him And he is given that authority by the Ancient of Days, by God the Father. So what we should see, even from the title alone, is that Jesus is not just a babe in a manger, but he is the one who is the greatest of kings. He is the one who is the king of kings. He is the one who is worthy of God's dominion and God's glory. And his nature as true God meant 
He had no need really to serve mankind at all, to serve by even becoming a human being. And yet he did so because part of the character of God is to be a God of love, a God of mercy, a God whose mind is to help humanity. Think this through with me a little more. Think it through with me by remembering that Jesus is the creator of all things. In Colossians, we are told that this Jesus is the very image of the invisible God and the one through whom all things were created in heaven and on earth. All things visible and invisible created by him. And we're told in Colossians as well that he is the one who holds everything together. He is the sustainer of all life. So Jesus, by virtue of his being God, is really above all. Yet he comes to earth, he comes to the earth he has made, a place that was beautifully made but now marred by sin, and he enters the world not with all the glory of God, but he enters it as a human being. He enters it as a babe. Now we're most aware at this time of year that his entry into the world was of course accompanied by the praises of a host of angels the host of heaven, but he doesn't come to a new throne room or a grand palace. He doesn't come demanding the glories of this world, but he comes humbly and he comes simply to be born of a virgin mother, to be laid in a manger and to be raised by human parents. This is our God. This is our God with all the excellence that God commands. And yet in this most wonderful display of amazing love, he humbly becomes a human being. A man most humble at that. He is man's almighty creator, but he takes on human form and he does it for the purpose of becoming, as Matthew describes, a servant. He comes not to be served, he comes to serve. And we see that in the life of Jesus as he lives a life of service in obedience to the will of the Father. He comes obedient to the law that he as part of the Trinity would have decreed. He becomes obedient for our sakes and for God's glory. And his servant-like obedience is indeed a service unto death, even to death on a cross. You see, even when we are thinking of Jesus in his human infancy, we should know that Jesus came incarnate so that living as a man, he might also die as a man. And in his dying, fulfill what we read of last in the passage. His coming to die is so that he might become a ransom for many. We all have a concept of what a ransom is, don't we? A ransom is something of value paid to earn the freedom of a captive. Well, that is essentially what Jesus is meaning. He says not only that he came to serve, but his coming to serve involved him serving as the ransom for captives. He came to be the payment of value given to gain the release of people among humanity held captive by their sin. In a way, to think of Jesus as the ransom might even just take us back to where we first began this morning with the reminder that all of this conversation all of the discourse which has led to Jesus now speaking about why he came 
took place when he and the disciples, along with others, were on the road to the Passover feast in Jerusalem. Centuries earlier, when Israelites, when the Israelites were released from their captivity to slavery in Egypt, their release was accomplished by God after a first Passover celebration. They were released from slavery to freedom through the shedding of blood of an unblemished, perfect lamb offered in sacrifice so that the firstborn of Israel would be spared from the death that came from the angel of death. The lamb served as a type of ransom. And with that knowledge, hear now these words from 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19. Peter is speaking now to Christians. Christians redeemed by Christ to God. And Peter says to the Christian, you are not redeemed by corruptible things. Things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. But you, Christian, you are redeemed ransomed, if you will, with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. God himself is the final redeemer of the many who are his people. And for them to be redeemed, the ransom price must be paid. And the price is not paid by the blood of a shed animal sacrificial lamb. It's paid by the shed blood of the incorruptible Savior. God himself in the second person of the Trinity offers his own precious blood, the incarnate God in the flesh, so that you, Christian, might be spared the death and eternal damnation and torment and destruction that your sin has merited. Jesus came, came incarnate to be your ransom price. He was born to give his life so that you might gain life. He came as our servant, the servant who accomplished the most ultimate act of sacrificial service ever known, leaving his place in the heaven, taking on human form, becoming obedient to his heavenly Father, obedient to death on the cross, to be the ransom paid for the forgiveness of our sins. Yes, his life as a servant establishes a pattern for our lives but is taking on humanity to be born in the flesh so as to die in that flesh also assures those who know him that our forgiveness has been completed, a forgiveness needed because our servanthood is always so imperfect. We are called to serve, you see, not so that we might be ransomed, but because we have been ransomed. And because we know that, May we live our lives to the glory of the one who has so richly blessed us with such a great mercy. This is why Jesus came incarnate. Jesus has told us so. He came to fulfill the law and the prophets. He came to call sinners and to heal the deathly consequence of human sin. His coming will not be understood by all, and as a result, there will be division even in what would otherwise be the closest of families. And we should be so thankful, so thankful that he came as the chief servant of mankind, serving to the utmost to the giving up of himself over to the wrath of God as the ransom for those he came to, be, 
to, to save, the ones he came to redeem. This is the time of year when most of our thoughts will focus upon the birth of a child, the child in Bethlehem. As we do so, my prayer for us all is that we never forget who it was that was born and why it is that he came to such a dark and dying world and that we will, from the depths of our heart, all praise God for the mercies of Jesus Christ. May that be so. Let's pray.